Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, crises can be switching points for states and societies, wrote sociologist Eric Kleinenberg in March of last year, just as the dangers of COVID-19 were dawning on us. And the coronavirus pandemic, said Kleinenberg, could well be the moment when the United States discovers its better collective self. Well, that didn't happen in the eyes of many Americans who report feeling anger and resentment over daily examples of our disregard for each other's needs. This hour, we'll look at why the pandemic did not unite our polarized country and how to get back our shared humanity. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In late September, writer Saeed Jones lamented the selfishness and cruelty he's witnessed during the pandemic, tweeting, I'm angry and sad and bitter. This is not who I want to be. In October, a ProPublica story by journalist Sarah Smith with the headline, We're Losing Our Humanity and the Pandemic is to Blame, documented stories of willful disregard for others' needs and concerns. We look this hour at what's fueling some of these behaviors and what the pandemic has exposed about our human relationships. And joining me first is writer Saeed Jones. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Saeed. Of course, thanks for having me. Just so listeners know, your full tweet said this, I hate this, I hate what we're doing to each other. 18 months in, and I feel like the pandemic and the protracted costly selfishness that seems rampant has pushed me to a point of cruelty I didn't know I had in me. I'm angry and sad and bitter. This isn't who I want to be. Say, what made you write that? write that? Was it a specific incident or a thought? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it was almost difficult revisiting that tweet this morning. Um, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, the first thing that stands out to me is I noticed I tweeted it at 8.26 in the morning. You know, my day was just getting started. But um, like many people, I've, I've struggled with sleep um, over the course of the pandemic. It comes and goes. But uh, this was one of those mornings where I had barely been able to sleep all night long. And um, even though, you know, my, my days were going fine, often at night, as in this case, um, I would just like be in bed thinking about everything that's going on, both the pandemic, you know, what's going in our political environment, climate change, you know, it just felt like all of my anxieties would catch up with me at once. And then as I'm trying to get my day started, I, I don't know what particular news development it was, but I, I saw something about, you know, the Delta variant and how it was impacting people in Ohio where I live and hospitals were starting to fill up again. And I just... 
I just felt this flood of rage, which was different. Mm -hmm. Usually it was sadness or, you know, but I just remember being so angry because I felt like, okay, at this point, we are in the situation because of decisions people are making. This is no longer like a natural disaster. We have now veered into man-made disaster. And it just made me, you know, so angry that I was grateful that I was home alone, you know, at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> you, you said pushed me to a point of cruelty. How did you define cruelty there? Was it just the rage and the, the thinking? Um, or was it actually things you saw or felt yourself doing that felt cruel? Yeah. Right. I mean, I have to admit, I, I think it was thinking. Fortunately, it stopped there. Um, I That was the first morning I remember thinking, you know, just let these people die. If they don't want to get vaccinated, if and, and if they don't want to wear masks, just fine. You know, we're better off without them. And that's a disturbing thought, you know, morally, <laughs> you know, ethically, that is not who I am. But, yeah. and, and I'd seen people, of course, express iterations of it before, but that was the first time I was like, fine, let them go. And it just, almost as soon as I felt the anger, I felt the shame that I could, you know, let myself get to that point. Well, your tweet though got a flood of agreement. One response was, <laughs> I feel this so much, ready to cut off family, hating everybody. It's an awful feeling that makes me feel physically ill. What did you make of the reaction to your tweet? I mean, I, I, I've got to be honest, I muted it almost immediately. <laughs> um, in, in part because, you know, um, I've been on Twitter for some time, almost over a decade now. And I know, like, when you tweet something with a really strong earnest feeling, and then you start getting all the engagement, the retweet, it can almost um, intensify, uh, you know, what you're feeling in ways that I think are unproductive. I was like, I'm already upset enough. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I just kind of muted it. And then, yeah, to my surprise, I think the next day I, I came and I was stunned. I think that that tweet might have gotten more traction than anything I've tweeted, you know, um, in, in the last year or so. Um, so it was both looking big picture, you know, it was comforting. It was like, okay, well, obviously a lot of people are going through this. I'm not just like an outlier. And that was helpful in terms of addressing the shame. But then it was like, oh no, this many people feel this way. You know, right. that's, that's kind of a scary prospect. <laughs> right. And, and actually, let me ask our listeners if they do relate to your tweet and if there have been any specific incidents that have made them think, we are losing our humanity or my my faith in humanity is really being tested. You can share them by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email them at forum at kqed.org. Saeed, you said that it was difficult to revisit the tweet. And I have been wondering how you've been feeling since you wrote it. Have you been processing the, the this isn't who I want to be part of this? Right. Or are you feeling better? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think one day at a time, you know, you say, oh, I'm fine. And then, you know, something happens an hour later. Um, I think as is often the case, you know, as a writer, um, as a communicator, I find often by the time I'm willing to say something out loud, whether it's a tweet or, you know, whether I write something in a poem or essay, I'm usually right at the turning point. It's almost like the darkest moment right before the dawn. Um, and so I do think 
um, that tweeting, um, you know, kind of admitting what I was feeling and I'd been like holding it in my chest, you know, it did feel like it immediately allowed me to start talking about it. And so, yeah, I do feel better. I was, I was grateful, you know, I have a wonderful therapist. So I was like, hello, I, you know, I know exactly what we need to talk about <laughs> today. But, you know, it also enabled me to, you know, because it was both, you know, people on Twitter, but also friends, you know, that I'm close to texting me. And so then you kind of begin that dialogue. And I just think the beginning of being able to share something that's been weighing down on you, you know, I think the truth is that I've been feeling that way for weeks, if not months. Um, so I think, yeah, that was the beginning of feeling better. And it's not that, I mean, we're still in it, right? Um, and I, yeah. I want to be honest about that. But um, I do think it's easier when you know you're having a weird day and then you can like go to your group text and say, is anyone else feeling weird? You know, and, and I think that's a, at least a coping strategy for this kind of protracted stress. I want to bring Eric Kleinenberg into the conversation because he's literally working on a book about the pandemic that's titled 2020, A Social Autopsy, but really looking at the way that we've interacted with each other over time. Eric Kleinenberg, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Eric Kleinenberg is a professor of social science at New York University. I'm really curious what you make of the reaction to Saeed's tweet and, and what you think is happening. Well, this has been an unusual time and we all feel precarious and vulnerable, I think in a way that we don't ordinarily. Um, we're also encountering behavior that is hard for us to understand and oh, we're, we're encountering it all the time. And, and that's true really regardless of who we are and where our politics take us. So for instance, there are many of us who have felt in the last couple of years as if the scariest thing has been the threat of this novel coronavirus and death from a horrible disease. Um, th there's an isolation about uh, this illness that is also scary. And many people stayed home for a long time, engaged the world and felt that they had to be physically protected. You know, they, they, they felt this kind of physical uh, need to defend themselves in a way that they hadn't before. Not everybody felt that way. I've had people tell me, uh, you know, many women experience life on a daily basis uh, with a level of concern that men didn't understand before this. So that, that's open for discussion. But there are others who said, what, what's really scary at the moment is a threat to my individual freedom. And that's the thing that I hold sacred. Uh, there are other people telling me how I need to behave, what I need to wear, what I need to put in my body. And I feel like I now have to protect myself in a different mm. way. And, and the clash of those two worlds in public has been really unusual and has yeah. produced all kinds of uh, tough stuff. It's the clash, but it's also sort of, I think what you're describing that the stakes are very high and uh, whether real or or imagined, the stakes are high when you're talking about death or you're talking about freedom. Saeed, one thing I'm struck by is you said that a lot of times when you write something like that, it, it's sort of the, um, the dark before the dawn. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm so glad to hear that on a personal level, it has kind of been like that for you. I wonder if you think it's that way for our nation. <laughs> are you oh, as optimistic? <laughs> Um, am I as optimistic? I wish I could say I am, but I'm not. Um, you know, I, I saw someone mention, and I just hadn't thought about it, that we are now heading into our third winter um, in this pandemic. And I think 
um, you know, I, I keep going back to the word protracted, but um, I just think in the article from ProPublica was so helpful in illuminating this. I just think the longer you are in a dynamic, you know, the more solidified the tendencies become. You know, I, I have felt my kind of, um, my, my tendency to kind of flinch and panic or, you know, kind of have a quick scared reaction is intensified. And I worry if, if it's always going to be that way. I think as a nation, yikes, I, I, I don't see, it, it's difficult to envision at this point um, the pressure release valve that we would need to kind of get all of this energy out. You know, it's very clear that, um, you know, a president, whether it's President Biden or even President Trump, right, at one point, you know, was telling people to get vaccinated and he got booed. Um, I, I think it's difficult to envision um, the kind of shift that would actually help us kind of all collectively exhale in a way that would allow us to really see each other in a way that we haven't been able to see each other for almost 18 months. Well, John writes, I've had some very unchristian-like feelings towards people that don't want to get vaccines or wear masks or even deny that COVID is real. So it sounds like John can certainly relate to what you were feeling, Saeed. And I think you're right. I mean, yeah. the, the prolonged nature of it, the prolonged fatigue, the prolonged stress, uh, that's really hard. And let's face it, in some cases, even releasing the anger in ways that might not be healthy can feel in the short term pretty good. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, I, I would take it even further. I mean, you know, relationships with friends and family members, you know, how do we undo these really difficult interactions we've had? I don't know. It's a lot of work ahead of us. A lot of work. Well, Saeed, really appreciate you coming on to reflect with us and share some of what was behind that tweet. Saeed Jones, writer and author of the memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives. Thanks, Saeed. Thanks for having me. We'll have more of this conversation and about the work ahead of us, as Saeed says, right after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Writer Saeed Jones' tweet lamenting the selfishness and cruelty he's witnessed during the pandemic went viral. ProPublica journalist Sarah Smith last month documented stories of willful disregard for others' needs. We're looking this hour at what's fueling some of these behaviors and what the pandemic has exposed about who we are. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. 
What are you feeling? Are you surprised by your own feelings of anger or resentment towards others during the pandemic? Are there any specific incidents that made you feel this way? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us forum at kqed.org. You can join our conversation. Eric Kleinenberg is with us, a professor of social science and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University, the author of Palaces for the People, how social infrastructure can help fight inequality, polarization, and the decline of civic life. Eric is also working on a book about the pandemic titled 2020, A Social Autopsy. Sarah in San Diego, join us. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you, Mina? I'm well. What's on your mind, Sarah? I just, to answer your question that you gave to the public of relating to that tweet, yes, very much so. Um, that young gentleman, Said Jones, just, Hit all, hit all the points that you can surprise yourself with some of your own thoughts from the last 18 months. And I just personally, I'm chuckling to myself now, but I do think that we as a nation and possibly the whole world are suffering from PTSD. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. it, it has been traumatic for many of us. Well, Sarah, thank you for sharing that reflection. And Eric Kleinenberg, a, a couple of things that uh, you brought up and Saeed brought up just before the break about the prolonged nature of this, about the high stakes, what Sarah's bringing up about trauma. Are these the things that cause social breakdowns, the breakdowns of, of basic courtesies to each other? I mean, we've been hearing about things like assaults in grocery stores and on airplanes. Forum did a show not long ago about doctors and nurses telling us they've been berated and attacked by people whose lives they're trying to save. Yeah, this has been a traumatic experience for sure. And it's hard to know uh, how we break through it. Uh, you, one could imagine a, a moment where, uh, you know, we feel less concerned, less vulnerable. The, you know, the vaccines uh, work well. Uh, we reach something like herd immunity. Uh, we become less concerned about day-to-day -day interactions, things that were casual that we took for granted before that, you know, now seem loaded with, with meaning and with risk. Um, but there's no doubt that we've been damaged. Um, sleeplessness, the anxiety, uh, we know that those things have spiked over the last 18 months. Uh, and we also know uh, that it's hard to figure out how we piece things back together again. And I think that there are many of us who just feel unmoored at the moment. Uh, so I, it does not surprise me to hear a reference to, to post-traumatic stress disorder. That said, I, I do want to say, that, you know, as a social scientist, I get sometimes I'm a little allergic to uh, our reaction to events when we think, you know, uh, the, the world is falling apart, uh, sociability is over, uh, we're only violent with one another in public. And one of the things I've observed looking closely at how people have behaved over the last two years is some extraordinary outpourings of mutual support, mutual mm -hmm. assistance, community get togetherness. Uh, there, there's more than one side of the story of trauma. Yes, and definitely uh, during this hour, want to talk about ways that we can get back to our shared humanity. Let me go to caller Tim in San Francisco. Hi, Tim. Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm going to try to not be emotional about this. I'm a 50-year-old 50 50 gay man, and I lived through the first pandemic of AIDS. And in the 80s and uh, 90s, when all of my friends were dying, um, 
conservative friends who were friends of the family uh, were talking openly about how they thought gay men should be locked into camps so that we could die uh, away from them and not infect anybody else. So these are the same people that are the religious Christian Reich in this country, and they are not. They are not my friends. These are Donald Trump supporters uh, in the religious right who um, who don't want to get vaccinated, who don't want to take care of themselves, who are infecting other people, the same people who wanted me to die. Now that they're, the shoe is on the other foot, if they don't want to get vaccinated, that's fine with me. I hope they all die off because I don't want them in my country anymore. I don't want people who think I should not exist and that I should die living amongst me. And not, uh, I'll add one other thing is since we, since they are tying up our uh, emergency rooms, we should have COVID tents outside of the emergency rooms where they are taken care of second. If you're not vaccinated and you have COVID, you do not get to, you do not get an urgent care bed in the emergency room. That's, that's not okay at this point. So if they don't want to take if they don't want to get the vaccine and they want to take the risk in catching COVID and passing away from it, I'm all for it because these people are not my friends. They're not the friends of my community. They still don't want me to exist to this day. If you go to a Trump rally, you will hear the word and you will hear it loudly. And if you beat that word, just know that it is a word that is still used against the people of my community. And it is still out there. And I just, yeah, the anger is there. And I don't want to make peace with these people because they don't want to make peace with me. Well, Tim, and that I, has been proven time and time again. I'll stop there. I am so sorry for the things that you have heard, for the terrible things that you've heard then and that you're hearing now. And what I'm hearing, um, Eric Kleinenberg, and what Tim is saying is a sense of, of feeling incredibly fed up, but also what I think I have seen reflected in a lot of surveys and polls that that it's very difficult to see each other as human beings anymore. Can you react, if you would, to Tim and what Tim is saying, but also how we get to that point? What kind of conditions often lead to it? Well, at first, I think that Tim is expressing something that I think a lot of people feel now, and the sense is, uh, it's hard to feel a sense of tolerance towards others who are violent to us. And there, there are many kinds of violence that, that we've experienced depending on who we are. And I think one of the things that Tim makes clear is that this pandemic crisis has not just been a crisis about a virus. It has been a crisis born of overlapping problems, right? That, that, that hit one another, uh, collide and, and, and shape this experience. So, uh, you know, the, the, uh, experience of racial injustice, uh, which has defined this country for so long, got written into the pandemic experience and expressed in terms of who lived and who died, who was able to protect themselves, who was not. You know, issues around class uh, uh, mattered in, insofar as some people were essential workers and had to go into you know, crowded offices and workspaces even when there was no PPE and were more likely to, to get the disease. It, it mattered uh, when people went back to crowded houses uh, and and the issues around uh, homophobia and and uh, that kind of hatred, you know, came up personally and viscerally for for Tim as well. And so I think a lot of people understand that because they, you know, that 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 feeling that they're tired of 
being kind to people who are, you know, who are doing violence towards them is very real. And, and I think the fact of life in the pandemic is that when uh, people walk around with the notion uh, that basic kind of gestures towards the public health, basic gestures of solidarity that show respect and recognition of someone else's vulnerability, uh, that, that, that those things can be ignored in the name of individual freedom. Uh, you know, that, 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 that feels grotesque and it feels like a violation of you know, the, 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 the basic agreements that we make when we're part of civil society. And so, you know, so where I go with Tim's comment is, you know, this is a threat to uh, tenets of civil society, of democratic culture, and uh, I think we, we are in a state uh, uh, of, uh, of a kind of emergency. And I, and I, and, and I think you know, everyone is feeling uh, you know, very raw and vulnerable from the pandemic, but also uh, by the political season that we're in. Um, so so I, you know, I think that's why this has hit such a nerve. And I think it's why it's so confusing for us. And, th and then I guess the last thing I'll say is you know, what I take Saeed to be uh, uh, pushing us to do is think about what, what it means for us that so many of us can relate to that feeling of wanting an adversary uh, to suffer or worse, of wanting an adversary to be dead, of saying enough, you know, they deserve second-class treatment in a hospital or no treatment at all. Uh, there are many, many of us who feel like when we get to that kind of feeling, it tells us that something is very wrong. Well, this listener tweets, I work in a hospital. I am continuously shocked by my feelings toward unvaccinated patients who attack us as uninformed sheep while demanding care from exhausted, understaffed caregivers. Not sure how long we can go on. Maria writes, I think the anxiety and anger we're feeling is due to the pandemic's limitations on our natural modes of communication as we use social media as a poor replacement we're steered into the conflict and rage social media thrives on. Eric Kleinenberg, you certainly examined social media. You examined actually a lot of interactions, altercations in 2020 and 2021 on social media. And uh, one of the things that uh, you were struck by was how many of the alt altercations begin over masking. In fact, you studied and wrote a recent article about it what makes masking or masks a particularly perfect trigger, Eric Kleinenberg? Yeah, you, you would not have thought before this pandemic started that you know, the question of whether you would put a light mat, lightweight mask on your face to protect yourself and to protect other people would become such a central flashpoint. <laughs> but it, it really has been for the last couple of years. And uh, you know, with a, a postdoctoral fellow uh, at, at NYU named Melina Sherman, uh, she and I you know, looked at hundreds of these viral videos of uh, Americans confronting each other in public settings during the early days of the pandemic over this question of you know, whether or not one should wear a mask. Um, and it was extraordinary, the outbursts of violent conflict uh, that we endured uh, during those months. And, and to some extent, they, they happen on a smaller scale uh, today as, as well. Uh, you know, that the mask has become something more than a protective device. It is a symbol. Uh, and it's either a symbol of, you know, whether you feel some responsibility to take care of the people around you, you know, whether you, you do take public health seriously, whether you take being part of a, uh, a body politic seriously, uh, or whether you see the mask as a symbol of oppression, uh, of kind of violation of your individual freedom and your rights to do uh, what you want to do. And 
you know, I, 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 I remain uh, stunned at the extent to which the United States is an outlier in the world among mm-hmm. places where we have these kinds of violent conflicts. Uh, people everywhere are frustrated with mask wearing. I mean, nobody really wants to be doing it. I'm, I'm now giving lectures at New York University wearing a mask to groups of students wearing a mask. Uh, on a daily basis, uh, it's uh, a million things I'd rather do than wear a mask all the time, uh, and and yet I do it out of a sense of responsibility uh, to the collective. Uh, but for for others, it's 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 too much, and it's amazing to see how America uh, reacts violently uh, to this issue. Yes, you you brought up how we're an outlier and dissected sort of the justifications that anti-maskers would give, and and one of the things that you pointed out is that they would they would say this is america like that's one of the reasons why i don't have to wear a mask and it made me wonder what characteristics of american culture make us in some ways uniquely vulnerable to breaking further apart in the face of a shared threat as opposed to coming together i i think that a kind of unthinking uh commitment to uh, hyper individualism, uh, kind of uh, an individualism that's so far beyond uh, what the philosophers' individualism thought about when they, you know, conceived of the idea of a of a self that was uh, distinct from a collective. Um, a, a refusal to accept uh, any kinds of constraints uh, on behavior that's suggested, not even imposed, um, from the state. Uh, as, a, as a sign of, of oppression. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think that the political leadership in this country, uh, when the pandemic began, you know, having Trump as the president uh, and, and having Trump, uh, you know, so publicly uh, refuse to wear a mask and also instruct everyone in his circle that wearing a mask was a sign of weakness and a, and a sign uh, of you know, not being with uh, this kind of extreme right program, you know, to send the vice president into uh, the Mayo Clinic, one of the world's great medical facilities, and have him refuse to wear a mask. Uh, you know, this kind of behavior, it really uh, egged on everyone who uh, was, you know, potentially interested in that. And so in, in a strange way, Mina, I think uh, during those early months of the pandemic, uh, the way that some people found a form of solidarity uh, was by bonding with others on the extreme right over the refusal, uh, uh, over the refusal to be part of something like collective. <laughs> they, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, solidarity uh, born of a commitment to individualism. And that has carried uh, the movement uh, su- such that I think it's, it's, you know, it's this kind of defiance uh, and rejection of basic, basic forms of governance, you know, basic codes of what it means to live in a society. Uh, you know, those things are now part of our political culture and uh, they are going to be very difficult to contain. Well, there was just this poll that was released Monday by the Public Religion Research Institute that said like three in 10 Republicans believe that violence is justified to quote, save the country. I mean, what does that say about where we are? Did you see that? Did that surprise you? Uh, I, I did see it. Uh, I can't say it surprised me. Uh, and of course, we're having this conversation on the day where at the Supreme Court, uh, there is a case being argued about you know, whether New York uh, is constitutionally capable of 
uh, uh, banning uh, uh, open carry uh, firearms. Uh, right. And uh, it's not even streets. banning, right? <laughs> it's just putting restrictions on whether you can do it or not. Right. But- right. And so, um, uh, you know, so it, I, I guess at this point, uh, it is predictable. I mean, I think that we have, we went through four years of a president who, uh, you know, liked to engage in violent fantasies about um, revenge and power, uh, who, you know, catered to uh, kind of fantasies about fascism and authoritarianism, and those uh, were stunningly appealing uh, mm-hmm. to many Americans. And so, uh, and, and I think this goes back to what Tim was saying before, what one can't help but, but feel the kind of violence that's in the air and the uncertainty that's in the air. And so when we come together to talk about the pandemic, we're not just talking about a virus. You know, we're talking about this uh, broader feeling of insecurity, um, of explosiveness um, that marks our moment. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I would be surprised if there's a vaccine for all of that. Right. We also have a very well-resourced disinformation communications apparatus in our country as well. Morgan writes, my husband and I just discussed this topic again over breakfast. Our mental health has been challenged during the pandemic. My husband and I feel grateful to have each other. Our friendship and respect for one another really has helped us through the pandemic. You, our listeners, are invited to share what is helping you maintain a shared sense of humanity or to tell us if it's something you've had a really difficult time doing. How are you handling those feelings? Have you acted on them or channeled them elsewhere? Uh, And if you do have thoughts about how to get back to our shared humanity, we would like to hear those or if there's any specific incidents that that are really making you dig deep. To remember that, 866-733-6786 is the number, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. We're talking about why the pandemic 
did not unite her polarized country, and how to get back our shared humanity with Eric Kleinenberg, a professor of social science and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. You, our listeners, are with us sharing your reflections at 866-733-6786. That's the number to call if you'd like to join us, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Kate in Santa Rosa. Hi, Kate. Thanks for waiting. Hi there. Yeah, this is Kate. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to share some thoughts about what's been happening in my family. My husband's mother has refused to get vaccinated and most of his side of the family. Meanwhile, my husband and I and our children are all vaccinated. As soon as the vaccine's available for 12 and under, our youngest of four kids will be vaccinated. Um, We've had arguments. I have had discussions with my mother-in-law. I have told her that I think that she's being selfish. And but she is adamant. And I thought that when she could no longer fly, that she would not get the vaccine or she would get the vaccine. But actually what happened was when she could no longer fly or she knew that was approaching, she flew to see all her relatives one last time. And so now she's back from saying goodbye to her brother who lives in Missouri. And so my husband said to me, look, I'm done. I've I've waited her out as long as I can wait. I've spoken to doctors. I said, what should we do? And the doctors all say the same thing. They say, well, you should stick to your guns. Mm -hmm. But we're at a point whereby I don't think we're willing to do that anymore. I think my husband's saying basically, look, I've waited my mother out. I've put the pressure on her that I can bring to bear. She's not going to change her mind. I'd like to see her again. And so as soon as our daughter is vaccinated, my husband is saying, we're going to see his family again. And the, the his brother, her son, is saying that he won't be around us because he believes that we are shedding something toxic that could harm them. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of turning it around on us. But the but his mother is willing to see us. But she she was waiting for her son to come and see her and then after her son came to see her she was going to get vaccinated and come and see us um you know her other son my husband well kate there's so much that you're going through and so many different directions that this has taken your thoughts or advice for kate eric kleinenberg well i mean first my my sympathy um because it sounds incredibly painful and i mean we are all up against um uh, this tough cultural moment where, you know, everyone believes they can have their own facts. And, you know, I mean, as you said, before we went to the break, that there's just so much misinformation um, that it's difficult uh, for us to settle on, on the most fundamental things with the people around us. And, and, you know, the conventional way to talk about this as we have been is that there are these different kind of big political ideologies and um, big, you know, big groups that, that have conflicts, but, of course, those those ideological differences exist within our families, within our, our private and intimate worlds, and cause incredible fracturing uh, and, and and real pain. And I guess one question is, you know, whether 
these um, fights about things like vaccines and masks have just become the way in which we uh, process other kinds of core uh, disagreements uh, and difficulties we have with each other? Uh, is, there, is, there, is there more baked into each one of these conversations? Um, and, you know, my, I guess what, 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 I, what I will say is that whereas when, when I speak about these things at the, at the large scale at the national level, it can get quite, uh, start to feel very hopeless and very dispiriting very quickly. Um, but what, what I have noticed is that when people try to work out uh, disagreements in a more personal settings, uh, you know, when, 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 when people, you know, really stay engaged, um, that as painful as it is, uh, it is, it is, rel it is easier to make progress on that than it is to do uh, on the national side. Um, and so I, I, I wish you strength and energy as you try to, to work through this. I know there are a lot of families in this situation too. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I was struck by in Kate's comment was about how she's not going to change her mind. And a lot of a lot of social psychologists, sociologists have been talking about how people's views aren't actually preferences, they're actually fundamental beliefs now that they've become moral uh, convictions. And when something becomes a moral conviction, it is much more difficult to loosen that uh, or to be able to find common ground. And then this listener, Maddie, writes, I'm sad and tired. I feel like I've lost my innocence about Americans. We are not rational and we can e be easily manipulated by fear and tribalism. This could have been so different. I strongly feel the anger expressed in Saeed's tweet. Um, and the other piece of this that Maddie's comment is making me think about, Eric, is that it um, that we can easily be sort of put into states of fear, but also a real desire to make sure that we're part of the in-group, that we all have this shared group identity together. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how that has also contributed to all of this. I, I remember reading this piece in The Atlantic where conservatives would literally disguise themselves to get vaccinated because yeah. they did not want to lose membership in the group that even if they didn't believe in what they were saying related to vaccines, the, the group that they felt like they identified with. That's right. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. You know, I, I'm a, I'm a sociologist. In fact, it's uh, always nice to be on KQED and on forum <laughs> because I was a graduate student at Berkeley at Cal and spent a lot of time listening to forum uh, oh, back nice. then. And so in sociology, we, we think about groups all the time. And it's important because so much of the conversation about these topics uh, ranges between the individual level and uh, the social level, the societal level, and kind of overlooks the fact that most of us do uh, get shaped by groups. We live in groups, you know, we, we, we socialize in groups. And so once uh, the group that we most identify with uh, establishes a, a shared position. Uh, and especially if that shared position becomes the basis for, um, uh, you know, primary agreement and relationship building, it becomes very hard uh, to break out of it. Uh, you know, as I'm here in New York, uh, one of the star basketball players on the Nets, Kyrie Irving, uh, has refused to take the vaccine and is not able to play right now uh, to the great, you know, uh, pain and uh, frustration of uh, millions of people around me. And 
the issue now is he's become such a public spokesperson for this issue of not taking the vaccine uh, that it's hard to see how he would change his mind without losing face. And I think that's a that's an issue for so many people. You know, how how do you change without losing face? And I don't know that that I don't know that happens on the Internet, but it seems to me like um, what is so important about Saeed's tweet is that it it represents this kind of honest expression of uncertainty, right, of, of, of vulnerability, of discomfort with oneself, which maybe all of us need to uh, find a way to express, especially with people who disagree with us. And I'll, I'll tell you one quick thing. I, in, in, the, in the first year of the pandemic, it struck me that it was very clear that, uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand were among the most successful societies on earth in dealing with the pandemic. The, uh, you know, they, 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 they closed down very quickly uh, they did a lot of lockdowns. They closed the borders. Uh, they did everything possible to eliminate uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19 um, from the from their nations. And um, in fact, you know, the rates of illness were very low. Rates of deaths were, were shockingly low. They, they did extraordinarily well. Uh, trust in government went way up in both places. And uh, what's happened in the last several months is that uh, even people who are strong advocates of public health have grown really frustrated about just how shut down things are, you know, just how difficult that it can be to go to the park or to play tennis or uh, to be at a restaurant, even without cases. And there's a little bit of a backlash, even from people who I think in this country would be on the public health side of it, that it's, it's too much. And so find, the truth is finding the right balance and finding the way to, to, to get through this in the most healthy way. Uh, is, is difficult, it's challenging. Uh, and I think the only way for us to move forward at this point uh, without just breaking, uh, breaking apart uh, and entering into something like civil war is for us to try to reach for the parts of ourselves that can be that honest. Well, Patricia writes, I for one am ready for a divorce. Let's geographically split into two countries. I really don't want to be labeled the same kind of American as the anti-vaxxers, the violent. Let me go to Sid in San Francisco. Hi, Sid. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Um, so my comment is that there was um, um, a gay man earlier who said that, um, you know, he's doing the right thing by taking vaccine. And if somebody is not taking, let them die. And I completely understand the emotion, but I think um, anger isn't going to take us anywhere. A friend of mine who said exactly the same thing, who worked for Johnson & Johnson, um, a, a scientist, um, so there was not that problem, but unfortunately, and he took vaccine. And then um, just in a few months, he um, was diagnosed with cancer and hospitals were full and he could not get the chemotherapy. He, the, the, all the, you know, he needed to go to the hospital all of the time. So we all, just because we do right thing doesn't mean that um, it's going to be okay. Others need to do that too. And there is no, there, we can't get angry at them. We somehow have to reach across the aisle and somehow convince them to do the right thing because 12,000 Air Force uh, pilots are saying that they do not want to take vaccine. If that happens and if they are forced to um, get out of the, their job, who will protect our country? And if there are um, uh, Chicago Police Union is not is the, the judge ruled uh, for them um, and not against them. And for now, they are it's OK to not take vaccine. And uh, or, uh, otherwise, if they mandate that, then they will not work there. Who will protect Chicago? 
people, uh, citizens of Chicago or for that matter in New York. And so um, I I think that um, a lot of people are saying these things and we can't just get mad at them. Well, I think you're articulating what what the show is really asking is how do we get back to our shared humanity because we do rely on each other in ways that we may not realize. Sid, thanks for the call. Let me go to Chris in San Francisco next. Hi, Chris. Hi, I'm a psychologist. I actually work in substance use disorder treatment, so a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, and where I direct people is, and this is the common unitive experience, gratitude. We all have so much to be grateful for. Can't we practice gratitude? It is a practice. It does not come easily. It does not come naturally. You've got to work at it. But if we could do that, I think we can find the common ground that is so essential. Uh, Well, Chris, thanks for that. And let me remind listeners that we're talking about what the pandemic has exposed about our human relationships and also how to get back to our shared humanity. We were we're with Eric Kleinenberg, a professor of social science and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Camelia in Sebastopol. Hi, Camelia. Hi. Uh, Thank you for taking my comment and for this subject. Um, I just wanted to, you asked a question earlier in the show regarding where this uh, kind of rebellious nature came from. And from like an anthropological perspective, the United States is a country based on rebellion and manifest destiny and this idea that if you push forward and you buck against kind of the authority that might constrain you or hold you back from your ultimate potential, Um, you fight, you fight for what you believe in uh, and the truth will out or, you know, you'll be victorious. And so I think that that has deeply impacted our culture in this nation in ways that we're often um, unaware. And my second comment kind of has to do with the question of how we return to collective humanity Um, and at the risk of sounding kind of (laughs) woo-woo, I think that both I would agree with the idea of gratitude. I would put forward the idea that we have some commonalities that bridge all of us. We have families. We have fear. We have instability. We have need for shelter, food, water, love, community. And that if we can step away from the idea that the choices people make are about us, we can accept everyone's individual stories as okay. You know, and I'm not naive to say that that's great on a personal level. I would not want to be the one making policy and imposing Mm -hmm. my belief system on others. But I think insofar as us relating to one another, we can accept way more than we currently are. Well, Camelia, appreciate that. Thank you. Um, So, Eric Kleinberg, we've heard a couple of examples of or suggestions for ways that we can maybe pull ourselves back from this feeling sometimes that can overtake us, the feeling that Saeed described earlier about becoming someone he doesn't want to be. Anything you would add to that? I would, yeah. And because I'd say that is, well, it's very true that, you know, anthropologically, our kind of deep culture goes back to 
the, the frontier and the guns and the freedom and individualism, uh, this country has also always been about uh, civic space and, and you know, mutual aid and you know, forming groups that engage in local democracy, um, volunteerism. That's part of the Tocquevillian side of, of the story here. And, and, and I will say that, you know, as a sociologist, I don't get to write prescriptions, but if I had one, it would be, uh, we don't solve this ideologically. It's not really just about trying to reach for cultural understanding on its own. It's by going out and, and practically, you know, pragmatically doing things. So uh, I, I do want to make sure we talk about the fact that as all of this has been going on, all this violence, all this divisiveness, there has been a flowering of you know, mutual aid uh, projects, neighborhoods in every part of the country where people are just focusing on how to help their uh their neighbors who are having uh, trouble with housing insecurity, or food insecurity, uh, or uh, you know, getting um, basic goods that they need uh, to get by. Um, I have seen the most extraordinary set of projects. Uh, you know, communities coming together to uh, try to provide uh, care and companionship for older people during the period of, of uh, the shutdown. Uh, people pushing their city governments to try to create more open spaces and parks that are accessible, more green spaces. Uh, you know, people trying to help their neighbors get to vaccines, uh, figure out how to get eligible for vaccines, uh, figuring out how to get things like masks and groceries. Um, this is happening right now all over the Bay Area. It's happening all over California. It's happening all over the United States. And I would say that anyone who's really interested um, in, in, in putting the pieces back together um, instead of trying to do it on Twitter, instead of trying to do it, uh, you know, with an argument, um, go out and get involved in, in, in just making things better where you live. And it's not going to solve the global problem right now, but there is a tremendous amount of exciting work happening uh, in every community I know of. Well, certainly looking for those helpers is a way of restoring our, our faith in humanity and also acknowledging the feelings that we're experiencing, which I'm so grateful to Saeed Jones, who joined us earlier for doing and inspiring today's segment. Eric Kleinenberg, professor of social science and director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU, author of Palaces for the People, working on a new book about the pandemic titled 2020, A Social Autopsy. Thanks, Professor Kleinenberg. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners as well for sharing their reflections their issues, and their hopes. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.